In Australia since 2021, there has been an explosion in the number of sexual assault victim survivors coming forward to prosecute claims. Inspired by women such as Grace Tame, Brittany Higgins and the Let Them Speak advocates, the media and the general public have woken up to the reality that sexual assault is widespread still in our community. The fight has not only been about prosecuting individual acts of violence, but changing the system that makes it so difficult to prosecute sexual assault before the law. Too few people have trust in the police system, and too often the police let victim survivors down. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Karen Isles. Karen is a longtime social justice fighter and progressive lawyer who's taken her social change skills and applied them to her lived experience of sexual assault. She was brutally assaulted as a child. Then, as she sought to prosecute the crime against her, she was abused by a system of abject incompetence that looked like willful neglect by the police system. Now as an experienced lawyer, she is using her legal and change-making skills to change the police force that let her down. To do this, she has launched the Make Police Investigate campaign. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Well, Karen, welcome to Changemakers. Hi, Amanda. It's so lovely to have you here, and it's always great to have fantastic Changemakers on the program. It's also fantastic to have a friend who's a Changemaker on the program, so double welcome to you, hey? Thank you. Cool. So now we're going to get into some pretty strong stuff today, but it's important to get into some of these strong que- into strong questions because it highlights the kind of change that we actually need to make a, a better world. But before we get into the change topics that we're going to talk about, I'd love you to tell our listeners a little bit about the kind of change maker. How would you describe yourself? What kind of change maker are you? Oh, what type of change maker? I think dog with a bone comes to mind. Um, once I tend to get hold of an issue, I'm pretty tenacious with it. Um, and, you know, also just kind of drawing on, I think I'm pretty resourceful in drawing on relationships that you've built up over a long period of time and, you know, the resources in your little campaign toolkit that you've developed over years of activism. So, you know, knowing the theory and the evidence of what works so that um, you're not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. So resourceful and dog with bone. Excellent. And resourceful both in terms of having a network of relationships that one has as well as resourceful in terms of having acquired knowledge over time is what I'm hearing. So, um, and then just, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, where do you currently apply these change-making skills? Like in what in what part of the world, in what sort of professional way do you apply these dog-with-a-bone resourcefulnesses? <laughs> Everywhere, including my personal life. I think my step is good. <laughs> Agree. Um, 
<laughs> I think for me, I'm a lawyer and I run my own legal and consulting practice. And we do a lot of work on social justice issues and using kind of all of those tools in the tool belt. So whether it's to create change through litigation, creating change through working with organisations to think about how they do things differently. We, um, yeah, we work predominantly on issues that impact women, gender diverse and First Nations people. So kind of do that day in, day out. For me, I kind of just see your job or the, the political party you belong to or the organisation that you volunteer with Maybe I'm a, a little bit cold and callous, but I see them all as tools to create social change. Um, sorry, friends, for, for calling you tools of social change. But, um, yeah, I kind of <laughs> view the world that way. Yeah, sure. So the, the idea that, in a, in a sense, like they're forms of power, I guess is another way you could you could say that they give you capacity to make change. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so obviously the interesting thing to to understand is so why did you choose this direction and look you know as i've said already you know full disclosure karen and i've known each other for decades and done many things together so maybe it's more for the benefit of of, of those tuning in that i'm keen for you to share a little bit of your story going back as far as you think is helpful for people to understand why you've become a resourceful dog at a bone lawyer with activist skills you know working in particular on, on with gender diverse communities women more marginalized communities why? Why this form of change for you, Karen? I think the, my upbringing, my family has had an incredible impact. And my family aren't the typical, you know, blue ribbon protester families. Dad, <laughs> mum and dad were both union delegates and both, you know, have a really good grounding in fairness and justice. Um, but, you know, they weren't members of a political party. They weren't, um, you know, founders of a protest movement or anything like that. But brought me up with a good sense of social justice. Um, one of my earliest memories of primary school in, in grade one was me coming home to mum and saying, there's a scripture class. I don't believe in God. I believe in dinosaurs. And um, <laughs> speaking to some friends of mine about the problem as well, and we all decided we'd go home and tell our mums and dads so that they could then write letters to create a non-scripture group. So my first collective activism was a non-scripture group at Kingcumber Public School back in, gee, when was that, 1986. So <laughs> Using your relationships and resourcefulness early on. <laughs> Absolutely. Collectively organised. <laughs> using the power of parents and the pen. Um, as well, you know, my auntie Margaret, my dad's sister, she, for me, is the matriarch of my immediate family. She is an incredible woman who in the 1960s travelled throughout the world teaching and was in Kabul, was in Iran, was in wow. Jordan, was in Syria, was in London, was in Canada. Um, she was everywhere, man. She was – and so for me that that sense of the change that can be created through education, um, she then went, you know, when I was – four years old, she moved to Tennant Creek and spent the rest of her career working as a the principal of the high school at Tennant Creek and then within the department. So for her, education and social change and social justice has always been a thing. She was involved in setting up the first and only women's refuge in Tennant Creek. Um, so, you know, for me, she's been an incredible 
influence and hello, Aunty Margaret, if you're listening. And also, I guess, in what way? Like, how do you think her story became part of your story? That's a really good question. I don't know. I I think I just always looked up to her and was like, this is the type of, you know, adult I want to be when I grow up. Um, she had an incredibly brave, adventurous life, creating change in the way she knew how and, and still does, um, even though she's retired. So, And then off the back of that, you know, my great auntie Mary, mum's, was a really staunch Scottish woman and her father, you know, was essentially a political refugee from Scotland in the early 1900s. He was the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party in Socialist Nationalist Party in Motherwell, which is um, not far from Glasgow. And so in the middle of the night, they packed up the family and fled because at that time they were rounding up and and killing the leaders of the Scottish Socialist Party. So they jumped on a boat and came to Australia. So for me, those kind of stories of social justice and, you know, the the very visual descriptions of my great great grandfather with, you know, running English lessons for working class people in Motherwell in the family living room of a night time. You know, those stories run pretty deep. Um, and then there's, you know, other stories um, from my, my dad's side of the family, um, particularly in relation to his dad, um, who was also, you know, quite involved in the local community, um, was a counsellor um, on the local council at one point. Um, so, yeah, social change and standing up for what you believe in has has run pretty deep in a very understated way. Yeah, but incredibly profound way when you're apply your mind to thinking about how your story didn't start with your birth, but rather with the relationships around you. Like I can see, I love, I mean, I appreciate you saying it, you, you don't feel like your family are, are the sort of blue ribbon protesters, but my Lord, there's a lot of political grounding that you, your family is obviously helping you I don't know, creating a sort of foundation for the kind of choices you might want to make. And I think one other thing I mentioned is, you know, as an adult, I've come to become more closely connected with the Aboriginal heritage and family members within, you know, my family. And the intergenerational knowledge of struggle and resistance and resistance to colonialism and how Aboriginal people have tactically survived that knowledge of injustice at its deepest form of genocide has also really shaped and is continuing to shape and deepen, I think, my activism as well. Yeah, wow, that's extraordinary. So, I mean, we could spend a lot more time on this question, right? I could <laughs> I could spend another half a day. We could go and have, have lunch. But I, I kind of want us to, for, for you to let us know. So then you've got all this background, right? All these relationships, all of these insights. You start making decisions about the kind of career that you want. How, you know, what did you decide to do? Like, we know you're a lawyer now. Tell us a little bit about the pathway that took you to where you are now, given this background. My original occupation of choice when I was about three was I wanted to to marry, marry the garbage collector. Nice. I don't know what it was about very the egalitarian of you. They're very helpful. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, marrying someone is really a career choice, but that was my first kind of aspiration. I then quickly moved on to becoming prime minister. Right. And that was, I think, probably by the age of about four. And then um, at some point in primary school, I think I deviated and decided 
to um, that being a lawyer would be a good thing. Mum worked in the Gosford District Court, and you know when I was at high school, I used to go and scab a lift home with Mum after after school. So I used to sit in the back of the district court waiting for mum to, to finish work and I'd just sit there absorbing the proceedings and what, what seeing impact? justice in action. And yes, it was like what did what did what what did it how did it impact on you seeing justice in action? A couple of times I I fell asleep and had a nap um, in the back of the courtroom <laughs> to my embarrassment and probably the the entertainment of um, his honour at the time. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, just seeing the kind of the the slow plot of justice and how methodical it is and considered and, you know, you never got to see the full case. I was only ever seeing probably 45 minutes at the end of the day. But then going home around the dinner table and having mum speak about um, the type of cases that were that were going on in the courtroom hearing about the absolute injustice from a lot for an early age i mean this was back in the early 90s hearing about the vast number of sexual assault cases that were coming before the courts and the horrors of how victims often child victims were being dealt with by the courts um that was you know routine chat around the dinner table and and probably mum's way of unloading and dealing with her vicarious trauma a little bit as well. Yeah, so kind of, yeah, kind of saw that and I did work experience with the Department of Public Prosecutions and followed a barrister around for the week and, again, sitting in the back of the courtroom for long adjournments while the judge read through papers. That was <laughs> not always thrilling. But, you know, you have a, had a deep respect for the, the system. Was it that point that you decided you were going to be a lawyer or was it or like it, t- tell us how that then turned into your career? Well, it, it turned into my, into my career in the sense that I worked, you know, bloody hard through the tail end of high school. A lot of high school I also, you know, wagged and skived off. But in the last two years of my high schooling I decided, no, no, I really do want to be a lawyer and to do that I better start turning up at class a little bit more. Um, So I studied my backside off and then, you know, was accepted into law at university. When I was at university, I quickly got even further submerged into the social justice movement and that's where you and I met, um, campaigning against voluntary student unionism and the racism Mm -hmm. of Pauline Hanson and Oh, crazy neoliberal everything of John Howard. So, yeah, quickly got involved in that and um, it was within a few years that I left uni before I'd even graduated and went and worked for a trade union. I was pretty impatient for social change and it felt like in the university setting that, you know, you spend a lot of time on yourself studying and that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to just jump straight in and be working with and for people. So I I skived off uni and then finished the rest of it part-time. I know there's a lot more. There's a time in amnesty. There's a lot time in the union movement. There's a time in lots of social justice campaigns. But what I want to do now is I, I want to take us to the campaign that you're working on at the moment. And um, and I want to take a look. You know, we now we can see the full Karen, right? This is a, a woman Uh-oh. who's who's come with a, <laughs> a a lineage of understanding the importance of power and justice, and also has sought to enact. You've sought to enact that in your life, in the world of the law, but in lots of different spaces. But tell us about the specific thing that you're working on now. Tell us about the campaign that you're running. Yeah, sure. At the moment, the 
campaign that I'm running is around police accountability. And I feel like this campaign has been brewing inside of me for almost 30 years. It's grounded in me using my own lived experience of how rubbish our police and justice systems are to bring that lived experience to the, you know, the mind's eye of the Australian public to then create the change that needs to occur. And it's it's kind of weird campaigning using your story, and I don't even like the phrase story, um, my experience, my truth, as the cornerstone of a campaign. It is um, kind of weird, and I think as well, you know, for me, when you're talking about sexual assault and rape, there's a lot of shame and a lot of stigma in our society and it is a really hard thing for victims and survivors, I prefer the the term victim, to speak up. And so for me, in my day-to-day work, we represent other victims of sexual assault and I see day in, day out examples Like I can't name one single client of ours who has actually had the police investigate something to what all of us would consider a pretty ordinary low bar standard and actually be satisfied with the way the police have conducted themselves and done their job. The normal experience that women and others have on reporting sexual violence is that the police do nothing or dissuade them from making a report. It was only yesterday that I spoke to a woman at an event who just came up to me and said that she disclosed, you know, went to Bankstown Police Station about a year or so ago and disclosed that her and her sister over multiple years had been sexually assaulted and raped by an uncle. And the response of the Bankstown Police was that, you know, oh, there's nothing we can do about that. It'll be your word against his And so, yeah, no, you should just go see a counsellor. Today. This is how the law acts today. It is commonplace. (laughs) It is rife. And in 2021, I just got angry. You know, I'd, I'd been putting my faith in the justice system for decades to do something about my own experience of sexual assaults. And in 2021... And, and, yeah. and just to say, Karen, I don't want to ask no, you to have okay. to describe it. Yeah. That's too much, right? And so, But just for the for listeners, Karen was a victim of a, a very serious and horrific set of sexual assaults, both in Queensland and in New South Wales, sought to get police intervention into them several years later and the police... No offence, they fucked around for the, for the best part of two decades, not investigating, losing files, losing statements again and again and again. Horrific, horrific, horrific experience. Yeah. yeah, it's been shit to say the least. And, you know, a lot of victim survivors talk about the, and this is certainly the case for me, that the trauma of the actual rapes I, I processed long ago. Like that stuff's you know, somewhat easier to get over and deal with than the trauma that the police and the courts cause. The, the, well, you yeah. expect that system to deliver, in inverted commas, justice when a system is so hypocritical, <laughs> when it says one thing and does another, there's, with power, it's 
I can only yeah, imagine. Yeah. So for me, you know, I got really cranky in about 2021 in the middle of COVID, you know, again, trying to, you know, call up police in New South Wales and Queensland going, hey, you know, remember me, what's going on? And I finally got to the point of thinking, well, this, I've had enough. I'm going to complain. I'm going to get my complaining pants on and um, complained to the police integrity commissions in both states and got a fabulous friend of mine and change maker in herself. And you should do a podcast on Pauline Wright. She's terrific. And so Pauline gave me a hand from um, from that point on. And, you know, it, it became very clear very quickly that the you know, and you think you just normalise the stuff that's happened to you and you kind of think, oh, and to use Roxanne Gay's phrase, it's not that bad. Oh, it's not that bad, the the level of violence that I was the victim of. Oh, it's not that bad that police haven't done anything for 18 years. Um, oh, it's not, you know, oh, it must be me, not them, you know. And you just internalise that stuff. And so I kind of ended up with Pauline's support of going, well, actually, no, this is absolutely a travesty of justice. This is crazy, crazy, crazy. The level of negligence, inaction, potential corruption um, is, you know, what we both came to the conclusion of. That, you know, and it's so ordinary, like it happens every day that something's got to be done and we... Um, off the back of um, other legal advice, you know, it, it's quite clear that there is no duty for police to do anything. So when you walk into a, a police station in any state or territory, there is absolutely no legal duty for the police to have to lift a finger. They have sole discretion on what they will and won't investigate and to what level and extent they investigate it to. And if you've got a problem with it, if you've got a problem with what the police do or how they handle your report and disclosure, you can complain to police integrity commissions, which from my own personal experience will get you absolutely nowhere because it is literally the same police in the same local area command investigating their colleagues. And you talk, you know, you think about the police as one of those institutions that protect their own. I mean, I watched, finally caught up on TV this year and I, and last year rather and watched The Wire and that whole, you know, American Boston, um, you know, police protecting police and looking after their own. It is, you know, it absolutely is an institution that does that. So, you know, what we don't have are any legally enforceable standards of police conduct and without those legally enforceable you know, standards, you've then got no mechanism to actually hold police to account and actually have them face consequences when they are so blatantly inept at doing their job. And I mean, you're a lawyer who's got professional experience in this space, who works with people who've experienced things, similar incidents to what you've experienced, and you have been stalled and blocked and failed to be, have justice and accountability. Uh, it's, it's, and if you can't do it, who the hell can? Like, who the hell can? Something obviously needs to change. So, so now you're going public, right? We're using the, the light of the court of public opinion to bring some new accountability into the into the police system. Tell us a bit about what you're calling for. Like, what are the specific t- demands for change that you? I mean, you've just described that you know a minimum standard of investigation. How would that work? 
And and for whom are you focused on first? Like how have you framed the campaign? So in the initial um, kind of call to action, the campaign is framed around victims of aggravated child sexual assault. So that's technically the crimes that were committed against me. So um, for your listeners who aren't familiar um, aggravated um, means the use aggravating factors in a crime. So the use of a weapon, the deprivation of liberty, the multiple perpetrators, and all three elements were present in in the crimes committed against me. And and the reason we kind of, or I chose with you know some advice from others to focus on police needing to owe a duty of care and investigate these crimes to a minimum standard. And the reason to focus initially and and solely on victims of aggravated child sexual assault is because I don't think many people can imagine crimes worse than aggravated child sexual assault. It is absolutely heinous Those crimes carry, in most jurisdictions in Australia, a life sentence or, you know, in the alternate 25 years. They are the worst crimes on our criminal statutes. And if we can't expect police to do their job for those type of crimes, then, you know, we've got Buckleys as a society. Of course, though, a duty of care and a duty to investigate to a minimum standard should absolutely apply to other serious crimes. I also think it should apply to all reports of sexual assault, all reports of child sexual assault, not just aggravated, to murder and attempted murder. They are all exceptionally serious crimes on our criminal statute. And all of those victims of serious crimes and their families deserve the police to do at a very minimum, the very basic bits of their job. And anything less is just ridiculous, silly, and really not cricket. Yeah. And they act in the public interest, right? But police aren't meant to be a, a law, law to themselves. They're, they're, they're the police service. And to ex- you know, in other forms of service, there are lots of regulation about standards and practices. You know, you can't send your kid to school and expect a teacher to just not do their job. <laughs> so in this case, we, we're, we're, it's, it's asking for the same level of service to be performed by, by this uh, part of our society. That's right. And also asking them, you know, we know the stats on sexual assault. We know that perpetrators don't just perpetrate once. And when police are alerted to, to people, the names and identities of people who are using this type of violence against children we can be sure that they're using it against other children, potentially against their partners and families. So it's also, you know, police are on notice about these people and yet are choosing to do nothing and in in making that choice to do nothing are then allowing further harm in our community and to other future victims. And when I reported back in 2004 when I was a trade union organiser with my wonderful friend Shabnam at my side on International Women's Day 2004, we troped on down to the cop shop, um, you know, like I expected and my motivation for reporting wasn't necessarily for justice for myself. I'm not sure I believe in that. It was about bringing those boys and men who raped me to account so that they wouldn't rape other girls and other women. And the police have missed a trick. They've missed the opportunity to prevent 
serious harm occurring to other women and girls. And that sucks. Like that's not, that's not the society that we should be living in. And so when I, I, I hear you, right. And I am a hundred million percent hopeful that we can change the police system on this and, yeah, and right. that, and that this, that this could be, you know, that this could create change in how sexual assault is policed and possibly prevented because there is a better system of um, of enforcement, a better system of at least investigation. But I'll be honest with you, I, I'm a little wondering whether that's possible. I also wonder, you know, for, for so many people who, who experience sexual assault that, you know, they don't report um, or they or they fear the process of going to court, you know, that, that that you know, the start this the police not investigating is only the start of what can be a very traumatic process. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. you know, and I, I, this is an incredibly important piece of work. But you know, for, there'll be people listening to this podcast who've who've either personally experienced sexual historic sexual assault or have very close friends who've who've experienced historic sexual assault. And I think for many of them, they don't know what else they could do but go to the police, and the police seem so fraught and hopeless. What else can one do? What else can you do if if you want to do something about a, a past abuse, but the the prospect of going to the police because of the lack of accountability that exists there feels too much? Well, I think the problem is is very little. Um, my advice to anyone is before you even consider doing anything, see a lawyer who works in this space and understand all of your options under the victim services schemes, under, you know, for civil litigation or if it happened in a work workplace or institutional setting, um, what the options are there. And then work with your own lawyer to, you know, take the time to consider your statement before you submit it because that statement will be used time and time and time again in different settings. And taking a statement is a really full-on thing. Like it it's, takes, it can take, you know, months or years for, for people to really fully recall. Um, and, and, and that's the impact of trauma, right? So, so doing that up the front, I think, is is really important to understand your options and what you might do. I I only watched The Godfather for the first, like The Wire. My husband has, you know, got me into watching these like cop and mobster shows. Fun, fun, um, at home, at home know, right? account, police accountability and, shows, great. And the, um, the opening scene in The Godfather is someone, you know, a bloke, you know, in the community coming to The Godfather for help because his daughter was raped and the police and the courts let his daughter down and he's asking the godfather to go kill the guy and so you know these this expectation around how hopeless the police and our courts are has existed for decades or at least since the godfather was written and scripted you know so it's really difficult when our community expects that police will do nothing it's a really difficult position to be in and 90% of women who've experienced sexual assault don't report to police. So if we're ever going to hold men who who rape women to account, we've got to change the confidence in the justice system. And there's a range of reforms we can look at for that. And I think this is this is kind of the first the first one that really addresses that, you know, the under the water bit of the iceberg of the the reason why 90% of, of women don't report. And what's powerful about it is that it's 
I feel like it's powerful because it's been based on your actual experience of how the system works. It's not sort of a, a, a good, no offense to brilliant academics or whatever. It's not, it's not based on a conceptual idea. It's based on a, on a lived experience of how the system actually works to, 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 to begin to move the foundations of that system based on what's not working in that system right now. And just because we win one thing doesn't mean we can't win another thing. That's what I'm hearing as well. So what is interesting to me, I mean, I think that your uh, status, you know, and to use your language, the status of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, someone who's been a victim of a horrific crime, running a campaign to change the system, that's, um, that's become, uh, you, you know, for you to do this magnificent, it's also true that there are some other wonderful and extraordinary role models in this space who are running these cases, both like in terms of seeking litigation, but also running political campaigns that seek changes in the system. The idea is sort of victims as change makers, in a sense. You know, it's interesting that it's not big not-for-profit organisations who would, you know, maybe people would have assumed or, or women's organisations who would have assumed that maybe those kinds of organisations would, would be doing um, something like this. Can you talk, talk me through why you think this the, the rise of the victim change maker, the survivor change maker has, has, a, has come about and, and I guess the power of it? It's, it's interesting for me on reflection. I've always been really big into collective action and community-based organising. It's interesting to me that I've not chosen to do that with this campaign and quite deliberately so. I think, and I'd, I'd like to just kind of call out some of the shoulders that I'm standing on to do this work. You know, Nina Fennell is an amazing victim survivor change maker herself. She has been fundamental to the Let Her Speak campaign, which profiled the lived experience of 17 survivors. And one of those survivors was Grace Tame but I'd like to call out the other 16 survivors um, who were really diverse and had incredible, you know, incredible stories of resilience, strength and crapness <laughs> in, in the cards that they've been dealt by the justice system. So, um, you know, big shout out to the work that Nina has done. Saxon Mullins and the tenacity to stick through the the legal process to create, unfortunately in the court, not create the change, but off the back of what was a very underwhelming um, response from our courts, then create a campaign and a movement for legislative change. Lula Dembele, who through her own lived experience has also collected um, a collective of survivors around her that are all engaged in strategic media and um, litigation to bring these um, examples to light. And then my friend Chanel Contos, who has also used her experience and um, created change in consent education and the way our community has these conversations. And I think it's really interesting that in sexual violence, we don't see big NGOs or even women's services particularly playing in this space. And I think the reason for that is so many not-for-profits have become government service providers. They're pretty much exclusively funded by government, are very committed to providing services, mostly mental health services, to, to victims. And this type of accountability and, and calling police and calling out the patriarchal systems in our parliaments, 
that make the laws in our judiciary that enforces and and creates law as well, and then our police system that that does the day-to-day enforcement, calling out the patriarchy misogynism of those systems is not winning friends in government. And you don't get lots of grants for that necessarily. You don't do you? get grants for that. And and I think it makes it very difficult. I think in some ways the not-for-profit sector has, has been a little stifled um, because they're not non-government. They're actually <laughs> a key part of government. So, and, you know, I also think that the non-government funded NGOs my own, you know, professional experience there is is that it's so different to be running campaigns based on lived experience compared to the professionalisation of the activist movement that has happened through a lot of um, advocacy-based not NGOs. And Again, I think, you know, this is something for the sector to take a really hard look at of the changes that are being made to sexual violence, which impact 20% of Australian women, and then on top of that, one in 20 Australian men and boys. Why are they not in the space creating change? You know, is it the way that they plan campaigns? Is it their responsiveness? Is it um, their commitment to being survivor-led? I'm not sure, but I think they are interesting questions to be asking of ourselves as as movements. I do think, though, that the, the benefit of individual victim survivors running campaigns is that it gives absolute agency to victim survivors. And when rape and sexual assault at the very heart of those crimes is the complete expression of power over and the complete removal of autonomy in every sense, that running your own campaign is an incredibly liberating thing and not being beholden to someone else's wording of a campaign ask or, you know, someone else's timeline is is actually quite liberating but it's also very lonely <laughs> and you, you bear the cost yourself. It takes immense privilege, immense financial privilege to be able to step away from your job on a full-time basis and run these campaigns. And I think that that's, that is no coincidence that the women that I mentioned before, Nina Fennell, Saxon Mullins, Lula Dembele, Chanel Contos, Grace Tame and others uh, have either come from a position of financial privilege or they have taken out second mortgages. They are in debt up to their eyeballs to do this campaigning. And I think that the call for the sector is if if the sector isn't equipped to be doing this, this very responsive, very urgent campaigning, then what they can do is to get behind and back the individuals that are doing this at immense personal um, financial, emotional well-being to themselves. I mean, look, it feels like to me it's another wave of of advocacy, right? You know, feminists get so excited about how many different waves there've been, and I, I don't want to get into that. But just to, to like when things don't work, right? They movements disorganize and reorganize them, and I feel like ever since when Grace Chain was one Australian of the Year, when Brittany Higgins came out publicly, and this movement 
bloomed. There was already there previous, but it became very, very public. Chanel Contos at the same time. All these things happened at a at, like at a powerful moment. I feel like what we're seeing, and it's going to take a while for it to form the space for another another form of 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 women's advocacy, and not just women. It's it's people who have been victim survivors you know, whomever they are, being able to speak up and create a new form of of representation that puts lived experience at the centre and it doesn't put a sort of medicalising their management of the trauma, but rather lifts up and creates a, a platform for advocacy that changes the system to mean it can't happen to other people into the future. Yep. And um, good call out of Brittany Higgins. I mean, gee, the whole nation, I think, our hearts broke for for her in what she had to endure through that ridiculous process that she's had to go through. Um, And I would like to say that I stand on her shoulders as well. And I hope her shoulders aren't getting too sore because (laughs) there's a lot of us doing that at the moment. And there are just so many examples of, of women doing this work. And I mean, kind of that, the other thing, you know, I was thinking of is, is this change and different style of campaigning of and why it becomes so consuming when you're doing it for yourself. It's like a it's like campaigning times a thousand. It is campaigning on steroids. It's the type of campaigning you cannot put down and it overtakes your life because it is so deeply connected to your sense of being. And, you know, I think, I think about, you know, you are campaigning like your life depend on, depends on it. It is your life. It's not a job. It's not something you put down at five o'clock. It is. And so you think about movements where that's happened and movements where they've, where the status quo of, you know, the progressive social justice movements have been disrupt, disrupted. And you think about the Aboriginal tent embassy. I think about the Aboriginal walk-off movements of strikes of working class people who just put their life on hold to do what needs to be done. The Aboriginal self-determination movements in the 70s of setting up a whole new alternative set of self-determining structures to empower Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people. And I think I think it's that um, that driver that a lived experience of oppression creates and it's it's that zest that you can't put it down, you can't stop, you have to do this because it's not just your life but it's the life of your daughters, nieces, friends, sisters, in the broadest sense of the word sisters, your aunties, all of us, um, and, and you you just can't put it down. It's, it's addictive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like you're campaigning because your life depends on it because your life does depend on it. And I think, you know, with that, thinking about the, you know, that re-traumatisation that is is created through dealing with with systems and, you know, that kind of constant asking for justice that so many – people, whether First Nations, whether refugees, whether um, women, whether people with disabilities, so so many have had this experience of constant asking and constantly asking to be heard, Um, you know, constantly asking for visibility. And the impact that that has on your soul and the impact that that has on 
you know, for me as well, that sense, and this is going to get a bit deep, you know, sorry for anyone who I upset and I, I'm, I'm actually in a really great place. I'm not going to, you know, do anything crazy, but it, it makes you feel like you are so worthless and completely lacking or deserving of any humane response of any of your human rights. And that sense of worthlessness goes into a sense of, you know, self-blame. And well, hold on, why, why wouldn't a normal person think this is horrendous and why wouldn't they do anything to help me? And that sense of worthlessness and not deserving and self-blame then pretty quickly becomes self-hatred and pretty quickly becomes suicidal thoughts or drug and alcohol addiction. So, you know, the, the fact that, you know, that so many victim survivors are here yelling for help, yelling to be joined in solidarity by others, literally is life and death. Like it really is. And for me, this campaign is, you know, Every day I think of a woman named Kate who reported to Kings Cross Police Station the crimes that she said were committed against her by our former Federal Attorney General. And I will say his name, Christian Porter, and her allegations, you know, again, never actioned appropriately by police and she took her own life. And I don't, I don't know Kate. I don't know what led her to do that. But I can say from my own personal experience, these campaigns are life and death. The, the asks for help are life and death. It is that fundamental question of your, your human worth. So, um, you know, I've gotten a bit deep. I've gotten a bit heavy. I'm okay, everyone. It's okay. But but I do just want to emphasise, like, this is why I think you see these campaigns by individuals gaining traction because you can't put it down, you can't stop, and you must achieve the result. And the power of what you do when you take it from being I'm asking for help as an individual to a system that is it must hate me, what's wrong with me, from that private frame to a public frame that goes, the system is is what's to blame and we must together change the system because you, me and everyone else is being treated badly by the system. That shift in lens to seeing the problem is not inside of me but is inside the system and therefore if it's in that system it can be changed. That being a change maker, someone with lived experience as a change maker, that brings life too, I hope. I, feel, I believe. I can, I can see the, the life in you that allow when you're able to actually see where the problem lies and then now do something about it. And that second wave feminism, to talk about the waves of feminism, the personal is political, is um, a sentiment that I think is, um, is really underpinning um, this movement and... Um, you know, shout out to all those second wave feminists um, for that one. Many shoulders, Karen. You're standing on many shoulders. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing so intimately and openly about um, what's happened and what you're doing about it and giving us the inspiration to be able to act more and with you on this battle. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Amanda. 
Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. To find out more about Current Isles' campaign in New South Wales, Australia, go to makepoliceinvestigate.org. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and we're on Twitter and Changemakers99 and I'm on Twitter still just at Amanda Tats with two T's and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content for the organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.